Good morning, everybody. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for the cross and we do thank you for the resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you are risen. And we do pray, Lord, that um, as we look at the book of James, you would help us to take up our crosses and follow you. We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your word, Lord, and for your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. It may seem um, a funny theme for an Easter Sunday, looking at the book of James again. It just really reinforces everything about the scriptures. They all point to Jesus, don't they? It's all for Jesus. What we do is all for Jesus. Let's hope and pray that we will learn something new from James this morning about how to apply the word of God to our lives. We're on a thematic study of the book of James. As I've said many times now, I think probably at least four, that he causes readers to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And his letter is very practical, giving instruction on how believers can be obedient to God's word and become more Christ-like. And that's the aim of these talks. It's to encourage us to do just that, to be actively doing God's word and to become more like Christ. Now, last month, you may recall the, the theme was perseverance and suffering under trials. And today we will be looking at what James has to say about the themes of wisdom and impartiality. So, without further ado... We have two passages in James about wisdom. The first one appears in James 1 verses 5 to 8. So if you'd like to turn to that now. James 1, 5 to 8. I suggest you keep your finger in the book of James. There might be other references that you might like to follow when I come to them. So James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We'll read the second passage now as well, before we go into that. And you can find that in James 3, and we're looking at verses 13 to 18. James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
Okay, now we're going to be moving about between those two passages a little bit. But um, first of all, in our passage from chapter 1, wisdom is spoken of in the context of trials and testings, which we discussed in verses 2 to 4 and which we covered last month. In those verses, James was effectively saying that we need the wisdom of God to enable us to be joyful, submissive and victorious in those trials and testings. We need the understanding and practical skill that is necessary to live the life that God calls us to and to bring glory to him. Now, before we consider this further, I want to go to the second passage, chapter three, where we see two kinds of wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom. So if you turn back to three or God's wisdom, which is in verse 17, and there is earthly wisdom or man's wisdom, which is in verse 15. And the two are completely opposite and contending one against another. So let's look at those two wisdoms before we return to chapter one. So in verse 13, James addresses the person who is wise and understanding. The word used for wise was applied to the Jewish teacher, the scribe and the rabbi. And James may have been thinking of teachers here as they are mentioned in Uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. The wise person has the skill of applying knowledge to the matter of practical living. This was the know-how. The person with understanding, slightly different, is the person who demonstrates that they are actually skilled in applying God's truth to practical everyday living by the very way they live their own lives. So in other words, to put that simply, We know what we ought to do and we do it. Then we are both wise and understanding. Verse 13 continues, Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Now that meekness can also be rendered gentleness, but it is also much more. It's the opposite of arrogance and self-seeking. And is the same word found in the Beatitudes. And uh, there'll be a few quotes from the Beatitudes. You remember I said that there's a lot of um, interaction between James and um, Jesus in the Beatitudes especially. Matthew 5.5 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is much more about accepting God's dealings with us as good and therefore not disputing or resisting him. And this gentleness is strength and self-control empowered by the Holy Spirit. Moving on to verse 14, the if used here, this is chapter 3, verse 14 now. The if here um, used uh, suggests that some of James's readers were harbouring this bitter envy and were self-seeking. And this harsh and resentful attitude towards others and a desire to gain advantage and prestige for oneself, can often be fuelled by the pressures of our society today. Um, When I was in business, businesses often looked for, well, that's the bosses, I guess, when I say businesses, they often looked for the assertive employees, which is nothing wrong in itself, but they usually liked the assertive employees who would climb over their colleagues to reach the top and to look for the success of themselves and therefore the company. So... Climbing over your colleagues is not exactly 
the right way of going about things, I don't think. But um, as Christians, we need to avoid being drawn into this greed and destructive competitiveness. And James instructs such types not to boast about their selfish ambition or deny the truth of godly wisdom. James goes on to say in verse 15 that this kind of behaviour, or, or wisdom if you like, is earthly, essential and demonic. That's man's wisdom then. Earthly, sensual and demonic. Earthly wisdom is the same as worldly wisdom. Its aims are worldly aims, such as making personal gain life's highest goal. It's earthly because there's no spiritual dimension. Heavenly things are not contemplated. Sensual can be translated here as natural or animal, again without any spiritual dimension. And it's like a non-believer being enticed by corrupt desires and affections. And I suppose worst of all, the source of man's wisdom is demonic. The devil delights in this kind of situation where bitter envy and self-seeking lead to the confusion and every evil thing that he speaks about in verse 16. Instead of order, we may see disorder. Instead of unity, we may see disunity. Instead of peace, we may see strife. But verse 17, thanks be to God that his wisdom is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Eight qualities in total. Let's look at each of these in turn briefly. Heavenly wisdom is pure. This refers to spiritual integrity and moral sincerity and is the opposite of this self-seeking attitude that we can see in the previous verses. Uh, We have an example of um, this sort of spiritual integrity and moral sincerity in Psalm 24. I don't know if you want to turn to it. Uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Keep your finger in James, won't you? Well-known verses. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So coming back to those qualities then, pure first of all, peaceable or peace-loving, is about right relationships. This is the basis of Christianity, isn't it? We've just read that Christ died that we might be reconciled to God. This is talking about relationships between man and God and man and man and it's in contrast to the bitter spirit of competitiveness and self-seeking of verse 14. Gentle, the word for gentle here is difficult to translate but um, conveys all of the following equitable, fair, moderate, forbearing, not insisting on the letter of the law Justice tempered with mercy. It could be described as the ability to extend to others the kindly consideration that we would wish to receive ourselves. Willing to yield means not being obstinate or stubborn. 
but being willing to listen to reason and appeal. And it's sometimes wise to bend or yield rather than to be rigid. Full of mercy and good fruits. The Christian idea of mercy means mercy for the person who is in trouble, even if the trouble is of their own making. And this sort of mercy usually issues in good fruits and practical help, which is why we take these two qualities together, mercy and good fruits. Um, I tried to think of an example of this, and I, the, the, the only one I could think of really, or, or the best suit, was um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the traveller from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among the thieves. And um, it was known that the road was notorious um, for its bandits and its dangers, and yet he travelled alone. So in a way, he brought it on himself, didn't he? I know the other people travelled alone as well. Um, The priest did and the Samaritan and the Levi all seemed to be alone, but um, this seemed to be trouble that was brought upon himself. Anyway, the Samaritan showed him mercy and helped him practically although the traveller was irresponsible, regards his own safety. Uh, Without partiality, coming back to um, the qualities, denotes an undivided commitment and conviction, a consistent and unwavering person, strong in their faith. And without hypocrisy, this word came from, um, or it was based around the uh, profession of acting. True wisdom does not deal in deception, it's honest, sincere, never acts the part. That's um, what hypocrisy is not. It's not acting, but it's thoroughly practical as well. And then in verse 18, James concludes his discussion of the wisdom that comes from heaven by referring back to the second quality in verse 17, peaceable. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The body of Christ is meant to be in unity, the members in unity with God, and with each other. If there is bitterness and strife, there will be barren soil. James is calling his readers to be in right relationships with God and with one another, and then righteousness will flourish in a climate of spiritual peace. And again, remember the words of um, Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. We can pick up two verses there. Verse 6, this is Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And verse 9, chapter 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay, so we've seen that from that passage there are two types of wisdom, and we can return now to James 1, verses 5 to 8. I'll just remind you again of those um, characteristics Man's wisdom, then, is earthly, sensual and demonic. And God's wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, it's only a short passage, so should we read this one again? James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, 
unstable in all his ways. Now, as I said earlier, this passage is really referring to the trials and testings written about in verses 2 to 4 preceding. Having seen how wonderful is the wisdom of God from chapter 3, I hope that none of us are arrogant enough to consider that we have enough of God's wisdom not to, de- not to desire more and more. And even if at the moment we appear to be free from trial and testing. So I don't think you have to undergo trials to seek God's wisdom. We can ask for it daily, can't we, to help us to live our lives. I'd just like to remind you of Paul's doxology um, in Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Please turn to this. It's a wonderful little passage here. Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Wasn't the praise good this morning? Makes you want to rush into Jesus' arms, doesn't it? Read this. Look at this. Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counsellor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And we have, of course, if you um, like the book of Job, There's um, a fantastic discourse in Job, uh, chapter 28, if you want to turn to it. I'm just going to pick out three very short verses. But if you want to look at it, we're looking at Job 28, the discourse on wisdom. Verse 12, Job says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? In verse 20, he more or less repeats himself. He says, From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And then in verse 28, God answers him and he says, And to man, God said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. So, after that little diversion, let's return again to James 1. Verse 5, we are told that if we lack wisdom and ask God, he will give to us liberally and without reproach. But there are conditions which are in verse 6. Now there's no doubt that if we're facing trials and testings, then we are more likely to call upon God in prayer for his help, guidance and sustaining power. In asking for wisdom at a time of testing, we're really asking that we might avoid the paths of wickedness and to live the life of righteousness really as a priority. So verse 6 says that we must ask in faith and without doubting. We must have a confident trust in a sovereign God and ask believing that we shall receive what God knows is good and right for us to have. James continues in verse 6 to liken someone who doubts to a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And in verse 7, James says that no such person suppose that they receive anything from the Lord and adds in verse 8 that such a person is double-minded and unstable in all their ways. And the phrase double-minded man here denotes being divided between God and the world, the world meaning the world system. 
unstable in all his ways could refer not just to indecision or procrastination, but also in a moral conflict and lack of trust in God. Let us not be like this type of person, but let's ask God for his wisdom. Okay, now the next theme is impartiality. Am I going too fast? No? Good. Okay, right. The next theme is impartiality, and we have two passages again. Uh, The first one is James 1, verses 9 to 11. So we read these now. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The second passage is James 2, verses 1 to 13. James 2, 1 to 13. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfil the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, although both of these passages talk about the rich and the poor, we must remember that in the widest sense, God is no respecter of persons. Christ died for all, regardless of colour, creed, rich or poor, wise or not so wise. He offers salvation and eternal life to all who believe in him as God's son and follows his commands. We therefore need to be careful of any distinctions that we may make between people and avoid showing favouritism to any particular type or group of people. Now let's look at um, the first passage, James 1, 9 to 11. 
there are two points which we need to bear in mind before we look at the detail. The first is that this passage is possibly a continuation again of the theme of persevering and suffering under trial. This theme appears both before and after those verses 9 to 11 that we're looking at now. But I believe again that these verses can stand alone. They have something to teach us regardless of what's going on around us, if you like. Uh, The reason for a possible connection is that trials tend to make all believers equally more dependent upon God. And this will be um, evident between rich and poor alike, should the rich be facing the trial of losing their wealth. The second point is that um, James in this passage refers to the lowly brother in verse 9, but just the rich in verse 10. So it's not absolutely clear in this part here whether the rich are brothers. But I think it's wise to assume here that rich and poor are are believers. And that changes in the next passage. You'll see that, I think. But I'll, I'll deal with that later when we get to the second passage. So verses 9 and 10, should the context of this passage be the continuing theme of trials, It's easy to see from these um, verses, 9 and 10, that the lowly brother may be exalted by the joy of suffering for Christ's sake because they may have a new sense of worth. Also, this same sense of suffering for Christ humbles the rich. Um, Have a look at um, Romans 8, 16 to 18. Romans 8, 16 to 18. Another fabulous passage from Paul. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So there's enough reason for rich and poor alike to rejoice in genuine peace and contentment when they depend upon the true riches of God's grace. We're all heirs and our money or our possessions really don't mean much, do they? So coming back to um, James again, verse 11, James gives us an illustration from the nature of a Palestinian summer. And this little part is almost word for word word, uh, what you can read in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, if it looks familiar. That's where you can find it. Uh, The beautiful blossoms of the field quickly wither and burn from the scorching winds blowing in from the desert. And just like the flower of the field, the rich man will fade away while he goes about his business or his pursuits. This highlights the fact that we should never depend upon material possessions. Okay, now we move on to the second passage then, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. And I mention that infamous verse again. In the previous passage to this one that we're about to look at, chapter 2, 1 to 13, James exhorts his readers to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Then chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, is one of several passages which follow that exhortation 
and give examples of applying the truth of God's word to various aspects of life. So James begins this passage then by saying that partiality or discrimination um, will violate the truth of God's word. Peter learned this lesson, you may remember, in the vision of the sheet, which was bearing clean and unclean animals. Uh, that's in Acts 10. And in Acts 10.34, you don't need to turn there, when Peter was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And there are various, I've got um, at least another, uh, one, two, three, four quotes, no, three quotes, sorry. I'll leave those in my notes um, about God's partiality. But um, God is no respecter of persons, remember that. Now in verse 2 of this passage, um, back to James, the gold rings were an indication of a rich man, as also the final, uh, fine apparel, of course. The filthy clothes of the poor man probably indicate that in this, um, I'm going to call it a hypothetical example, the poor man was a beggar. In verse 3, the rich man is given special attention and given a good seat, while the poor man is told to stand or sit on the floor. The basis for showing favour is on outward appearances and is obviously wrong. And those acting in this way become judges with evil thoughts, we're told in verse 4. In verses 5 to 7, James reminds his readers that the early church consisted mainly of poorer people, with few from the wealthy and ruling classes. However, the poor in the eyes of the world were rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him, verse 5. We must remember, or, or not misunderstand what James is saying here though, and remember that God does not show favouritism at all. Now James is not saying all poor people are rich in faith, and he's not saying that all rich people are excluded from the kingdom. That's obvious, or from salvation. That's obvious. Um, I, I, I tried to look for a good example, and I think the, the best example is probably in um, Mark's Gospel, the the rich young ruler that goes to Jesus. And um, this is Mark 10. Uh, Jesus indicated that those who have riches find it very difficult to enter God's kingdom. But it's not impossible, is it? But not all the rich are excluded from salvation. Not all the poor are automatically included. Now verse 6 um, if the previous verses were a hypothetical example, I think verse 6 could take us back to reality from hypothesis. It could be that the church had actually dishonoured their poor. And this is where we need to understand who the rich are. Um, I think they're probably non-believers, the ones that are referred to in verses 6 and 7. And that's because of the two pointed questions which followed um, up James's statement James says, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? That's one of the questions. And the second one, do they, the rich, not blaspheme that noble name 
by which you are called. Now, if we look at the first one, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. This was probably for overdue debt repayments. And you may remember that if you look at some of Jesus' parables, um, it's not uncommon for the poor in those days to have to live day to day or hand to mouth, whichever you'd like to call it. And many would borrow to feed their families. Money lenders were plentiful and sometimes extortionate. Nothing's changed, has it? Um, under a custom of summary arrest, a creditor was able to drag a delinquent debtor to court to seek repayment for the outstanding debt. So probably the rich in this case um, are not believers if they're dragging these, um, what would other be their brothers, into court. The second question, do they, the rich, not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Verse 7. This probably refers to the religious um, judgment that's going on. Wealthy Jewish opponents of Jesus were harassing poor believers. And I turn to Jesus' words from John 16, verses 2 and 3. I don't know if you want to turn to it, very short verses. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. That's the best I can do for you on that one, I think. Um, So, moving on, verses 8 to 11. Slight change of theme here. James reminds his readers of the royal law, or the law which is the summation of all laws governing human relationships. And uh, don't look at it now, but Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40 is the passage you want to refer to there. Jesus' words. If the people show partiality, they have committed a sin and are guilty, just as if they had committed adultery or murder. Now, God's law is a basic unity that requires perfect love of him and our neighbours. So what James is saying is if we break one commandment, we break the whole law. And James exhorts us and warns us in verse 12 to speak, to so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. As believers in Jesus, we're not governed by external rules and regulations, but as born again Christians indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, we're governed by the inner compulsion to love, well, we hope we are, the law of liberty. And um, I think this is a good Uh, verse or verses to look up. Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. This whole passage is about new creations and reconciliation, isn't it? But uh, have a look at that. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Praise the Lord. We will face a day of judgment. And in verse 13, James reminds us that only those who show mercy will find mercy. And again, we have a reference, if you like, to the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 
So by ending this passage with the words, mercy triumphs over judgment, James indicates that on the day of judgment, the person who has shown mercy will find that they have received God's mercy. So in conclusion, let's summarise the lessons from looking at the themes of wisdom and impartiality. Let's remember that there's man's wisdom and God's wisdom. If we lack wisdom and ask God, he will give liberally to all who ask in faith. Let us not doubt God and his goodness or be double-minded with one foot in God's kingdom and the other foot in the world. With regard to impartiality, let's remember that Jesus died for all and desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. Let us always be humble before God, regardless of our status in the eyes of the world, whether rich or poor. Let us love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. But let us also love our neighbour as ourselves. And let us always show mercy to others that we may receive God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who enlightens the scriptures to us. We do pray, Lord, that you would make us a unified body in this place. Lord, that we might um, live in peace and show your righteousness to the world. We do thank you, Lord, for this day especially and for being able to remember that you are risen. You are with the living and that we are just a prayer away. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us. We thank you for your spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and remain with us always. Amen.